Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. This is J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Ann Hammer, who I met when we were both working at State Street roughly a decade. Ann is the head of global external communications for Manulife and the chief communications officer for John Hancock. She started her career in marketing and brand work before shifting into public relations and communications a little over a decade ago. Anne earned her bachelor's degree from Suffolk University and also spent time as an undergraduate at Bryn Mawr, Oxford, and the Universidad de Salamanca. She lives in the Boston area and is married with a seven-month-old daughter. Anne, welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Looking forward to catching up on the world of communications with you. So talk about your current role, what you do for Manulife and what you do for the John Hancock division specifically. Sure. So I've been with the company for about five years now, and I serve as the chief communications officer for John Hancock, which is one of four business lines across the global Manulife enterprise. And in that capacity, I'm responsible for things like reputation management, media relations, executive visibility and thought leadership, but also events and how we show up with our colleagues, both from a communication standpoint and an experience standpoint. So the full suite of communications and events for that business unit as part of Manulife's entire enterprise. And I recently just announced an expanded role of leading external communications globally for all of Manulife. So this is a dual hat for me, really great opportunity to scale what we've built within the John Hancock business for the global organization. So in that capacity, I'm responsible for reputation management, media relations, executive visibility and thought leadership, but also financial communications. Financial communications, so the IR kind of activity. In partnership with IR, the media relations. You talk about dual hatting, is that unique to you or have they set up the comms function in a way where all of the division people have the second hat? We're a matrix organization, so dual hats are increasingly becoming a way to leverage great talent and insights from across the organization to feed not only the business needs, but also align from an enterprise standpoint. So more often, we're seeing leaders at my level and above take those dual hats to better connect the dots across the company. And how big is your team that you manage directly and how is it structured? So for John Hancock, I have colleagues across those span of functions within my remit. And at the global level, it's more of a matrix model. So I've got around 13 folks who are hardlined into me, but a wider population of more than 20 who come from other parts of the business, but are part of that community of external communicators that I'm responsible for. Yeah, that's a big comms team. It is. Communications is one of our biggest priorities now that we're five years into our transformation as a company. 
getting yeah. that story right about the next leg of the transformation journey that we've been on is a priority for the board, priority for the executive leadership team. So bringing that agenda to life is something I'm really excited for. Yeah. So that's probably a good segue into what you do day to day. So what's a typical day like for you? the extent days are ever typical? Well, that's one of the things I love the most about my job is that no day is typical. But I will say that every morning I wake up and I read the news. And for any communications practitioner out there, they have to read the news every single morning because it's our job to be as relevant as possible and those mavens for relevancy within the organization. So I spend a good chunk of my morning reading news from around the world, just grounding myself in what's happened from a market standpoint, but also from an opinion and perspective standpoint so that I can bring those insights into the organization as I counsel my partners. And then a typical day for me is balancing team alignment. So I spend a lot of time with my team talking to them and hearing what they're working on. And that's really to help drive empowerment and accountability so that I help them get their work done without becoming a bottleneck. So we have a fair amount of alignment meetings in various capacities to look at book of work, work and flight. And my job in those meetings is to help break down barriers that get in the way of good work getting done. I spend a fair amount of time counseling my stakeholders throughout the organizations, whether that's the executive leadership team across Manulife or smaller leadership teams from a business unit perspective. I spend a fair amount of time counseling them on how to approach offensive or defensive comms. And then there are project meetings to help drive those offensive and defensive comms. And I'd say that the two areas where I'm most passionate from a day-to-day perspective are coaching and development. So making sure that my team has time with me to focus on improving their work, improving their experience, and improving their trajectory as practitioners in the organization, but then also time with journalists. It's something that's helped define my career in continuing to have that frontline connectivity with top media around the world so that I can understand what they're focused on and how they can help us tell our story. What drew you to PR and communications in the first place? I've always had a passion for storytelling, for literature. I went to college originally for Russian literature and quickly realized that it's really hard to make a career out of that, but it's a great passion. And the fundamentals of it is that storytelling piece. And a lot of those same principles that you bring to narrative construction, writing, and analyzing literature, you can bring to communications council. So that passion for literature was really the bedrock of my interest in communications. But then I also just love how fast-paced PR is. And I love that it's a profession built on learning. You have to be a sponge to be really good at PR. You have to be able to understand your role as a communications expert, not a subject matter expert, be able to articulate that and instill trust in your partners that you may not be an expert in derivatives, but you're here to help them tell that story concisely and in a compelling way. But then you have to dive into the material, fall in love with it and enable other people to fall in love with it. So that grounding and taking an academic approach to the work also really drew me into the profession. Yeah. You work with a big company, well-known firm. They've got a strategy. How do you go about linking what you're doing from a communication strategy perspective to what the company's trying to do overall? So it's actually a really good time to ask me that question because I'm in yeah. the heart of it with Manulife right now. So even though I've been with the organization for five years, I've kind of had my blinders on in a bit, in a bit of a way with just focusing on John Hancock. And now the opportunity is building our PR strategy globally for the firm. 
And how I've been approaching that is a couple different buckets. I help an organization modernize their PR team, which is kind of a flavor of my career that's come to the forefront. I take a look at the people running it first. So I start with the team and I evaluate four things, people, process, platforms, and partners. So who do you have on your team? Do they they have the right capabilities for what you need them to do? What are our ways of working and are they effective? Are we able to prioritize? Are we able to connect the dots? Are the engines spinning in the right way as a team? Partners, how do we work with agencies? And are those the right agencies? And are we enabling them to do their best work? And then platforms Mm -hmm. from a cost and a usage standpoint, what are the tools that we use and how do they work? So that's actually a fair bit. And those basics from a PR standpoint are incredibly important. So establishing those fundamentals can take a little bit of time to stand up, but it's an important first step. And then to answer your question about how you align a business strategy with a reputation management strategy, I start by asking a ton of questions. So with whatever leadership team I'm working with, I do a fair amount of intake, not only with them, but with the people around them to do a prioritization exercise from a messaging standpoint. So they tell me what's important and then how near term that need is. And what I give back to them is a weighting of messaging weighted by complexity, priority, and relevance. Because there's what we want to tell the market, but then there's what the market will bear. And my job is to translate that for a leadership team. So I do that kind of mapping exercise with a leadership team. But then I also do a risk analysis, risk appetite analysis, I should say, with that leadership team. And that's both on an individual and an enterprise level. Not everybody wants to get out there and talk to journalists. Not every enterprise wants to be that risk on. And that's okay. I call it the creativity and control paradigm. And some organizations are going to be more controlled and some are going to be more creative. And the market will drive some of that. But risk appetite internally drives a lot of that. And it's important for a leadership team to understand where on the spectrum they fall, both at the individual and at the enterprise level, so that they understand where I need to push them as a spokesperson or as a leadership team to change the dynamics of how we build the strategy. That stakeholder mapping and intake is an important part. And then finally, understanding what the market will bear. So what what do journalists think of the organization now? Where do they have information or credibility gaps? And how do we baseline that relationship so that we can then drive a targeted approach to improving or changing the relationship to leverage it for future reputation outcomes? And in those kind of three buckets, those insights and conversations help me build a go-forward strategy really grounded in capability, priority, and relevance. Where you mentioned this sort of creativity control paradigm a minute ago, where does Manulife fall on that just out of curiosity in terms of willingness to be out there in the market? When I started five years ago, it was a lot more control and not a lot of creativity. But I, one of the reasons why I stay at Manulife and why I love working there is that's been changing. We've had significant transformation over the past five years from a leadership standpoint and business strategy standpoint. And along with a lot of other different leaders across the firm, we've been moving that dial more into the creativity side of it. And that's really to drive different outcomes from a business standpoint, but also from a reputation standpoint. And so I've seen that paradigm shift. And I'd say that it's pretty 
equal right now. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited for this new role to really tap into that creativity opportunity. Yeah. And when you get that, I'll say more latitude, right? In your kind of function, how does that then in turn enable the business in a way that maybe being more conservative, more reserved constrains them? So it comes down to if you're the biggest player in the market, right? We used to have this conversation at State Street. Why aren't we referenced in every single article like BlackRock? BlackRock's got a different AUM than we do. They're the number one on the ranking tables. If they want to be a little bit more risk averse, their reputation can bear that because they do have that seat at that table, that number one position where people are going to write about them anyway. If you're not number one, you have to differentiate how you show up to the conversation. And so you need to introduce more risk into your reputation management. And by risk, I mean creativity. And so thinking differently about how you show up with executive visibility, thought leadership, public relations, creative communications campaigns can help close the gap versus your competitors. But you have to be tolerant enough to accept that risk into the decision framework. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I also think about BlackRock in particular, since you mentioned them. I mean, Larry Fink, their CEO, has always been a strong voice in the market. It's certainly amplified by the fact that they're the biggest asset manager in the world, but he's out there, right? I said to Ron O'Hanley, who's State Street CEO now, said to his chief of staff at one point, this was probably after you left, I'm like, okay, Larry Fink has 750,000 followers on LinkedIn. Ron has 10,000. We're never going to have the kind of voice out there that I think he wanted to have. And he's certainly been more vocal than Jay was, who is his predecessor, Jay Woolley, and enables some different things, right? It enables State Street to be more of a voice on certain topics than they maybe had been able to be when Jay was running the company. And he was just more reserved in that respect. Yeah. And I think it's funny, Larry always gets brought up as the prime example of PR and thought leadership. And yes, it's because they're often number one, but it's also because they spend a lot of time getting his communications approach. And it's something that I've talked to a lot of different organizations about in articulating relevant perspective. There are all the things that you can do from a PR standpoint. I can get you a meeting with the top journalists. We can target the heck out of the Wall Street Journal, the FT, Bloomberg. I can have all of the intelligence and insights about these relationships that I'm cultivating, but it doesn't matter unless you have something interesting or relevant or action-based to share with them. And that's how news works. And Larry and his team have done a really good job of articulating tension. So this is where my love of narrative composition and communications really serves me well as a communications practitioner when it comes to thought leadership. A narrative arc, and you learn this in any kind of lit 101, is identifying a situation, obstacle, action, and result. It's how a story comes to life. And inherent in that situation, obstacle, action, and result is tension, is something to be overcome, is something to be resolved, and the heroes who help make that resolution happen. That SOAR framework is also the framework good communications practitioners bring to developing thought leadership, and it's certainly what BlackRock does. If you can capture that perspective grounded in relevance and action as a leadership team, if you're willing to go there to pick a little bit of a fight, then you can start having that game-changing reputation impact too. It's really difficult to get there. 
even risk on organizations have a hard time doing it. But if you can kind of capture that narrative structure from a thought leadership standpoint, it can start creating big reputation advantages. Yeah, definitely can. At the same time, they become somewhat of a lightning rod for certain topics, right? ESG was a great current example. And they've got pension funds in red states that are pulling money from BlackRock because they don't like how BlackRock is thinking about ESG. And so it, it does carry its risks. I think this is where you're going to being risk on. You have to be aware of those risks. You have to be aware of them and prepared for them. And that's where the fundamentals come back into play for me from a PR standpoint. You can't be out there throwing your opinion around if you don't have really secure relationships with the journalists you're throwing it around to. And the reason why is pulling on those relationships, not only to get the coverage, but when things maybe start going wrong or you start facing criticism, you need to be able to call that journalist or those journalists and go on background, offer context, give them the perspective to help shape the story. But if you don't have those relationships, you certainly won't be able to do that. All the risk appetite in the world doesn't matter if you don't have solid fundamentals from a relationship building standpoint. Yeah, definitely. Now there's a part of this that's more crisis oriented, right? When you're working with a company that's going through a crisis or some sort of negative news cycle, how do you think about what to do in those situations as a communications professional? Yeah, I think it comes down to trust, transparency, and timeliness. So what are the facts? What are our values? And what does each audience involved in this situation need or want? And how can we be timely and transparent with them to facilitate trust. And that's internally and externally, actually. I think organizations get crisis communications really wrong with relying on no comment. There are a lot of reasons why a no comment works in the face of a bad situation. And certainly, if there are any legal professionals who listen to your podcast, they will agree that no comment is the best. And I love my colleagues in the legal profession, and we work really closely together, but it's not always the right answer. Sometimes being self-effacing is the right answer. Sometimes going on background is the right answer. Sometimes just listening is the right answer when it comes down to crisis. But I view my role in an organization with crisis communications as really being the collective conscience of an org and tying actions that we take in the face of crisis to our values. Yeah. And your framework, I think, is very helpful to trust the timeliness and transparency. It, It so often too much time goes by, or you only share part of the story, those situations almost always seem like they come back and bite you. Yeah, you have to act. And the vacillation is what usually gets organizations. Hmm. And I think, you know, all of the risk oversight that we tend to have at large, complicated organizations is there for a good reason, but has to be broken down in the moment of crisis to create a bias for action. And I think that's the role of a good communications practitioner too in those moments is to recognize the need for some risk oversight for chiming in from the legal team, but be able to drive an executive leadership team towards action Mm -hmm. and a decision in moments of crisis. Turning to a different topic, you've been doing this long enough now that you've really seen how social media has completely come into the center of how companies think about their communication strategies. So From your experience, how has it changed communications activity? My experience is largely in the B2B side of things. And 
I think the answer is different from a B2B or a B2C standpoint. So in the B2B world where I live, I see social media as an employee engagement tool, first and foremost. It's how you should be talking to your future, sometimes current and sometimes past employees to make sure their understanding of your strategy, they're advocates of your culture, they're connected to your leadership. And increasingly, we're seeing external platforms like social media really being a way to reach internal colleagues. So that's kind of trend number one is we actually tend to view it more as an employee engagement technique. And the way that it's structured in our organization is part of a more internal team. That being said, from a B2C standpoint, it's very different. That's where your consumers are. That's where they're going to follow you. And the role of especially platforms like Instagram are incredibly important, at least from a North American perspective, in terms of engaging your product and understanding the value proposition you bring to the table. I I will say LinkedIn is where I play the most with my team, because that's where employee engagement and thought leadership and PR really come together in the B2B world is through LinkedIn. So we have a lot of oversight of that and a strategy for that. Um, but less so on the more kind of consumer-facing, personalized channels. Do you much in the consumer space? Don Hancock is an insurance brand that sells to individuals, but you talked about being more B2B focused. More than 95% of our business is driven on through B2B relationships. So through advisors and producers, only a very small slice of our business is D2C. Direct. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So a lot of companies, you talked earlier about just the sort of structure that you put around social media. A lot of companies have policies, social media policies that guide what their employees shouldn't, should and shouldn't say online. I would imagine been called in to adjudicate some of those situations. What's your advice to people for how to keep themselves out of trouble in terms of their own social media accounts relative to their work life? I mean, I'll tell you what I do. I keep my Facebook and my Instagram private. And all I'm doing on there is blasting the world with pictures of my seven-month-old anyway. But I take the crossover out of it. And I keep my professional social media presence strictly to LinkedIn. I would encourage any professional in our collective industries to do the same thing. That being said, for leaders, it can be a little bit of a different game. When you have a profile, when you're leading large organizations, they may want to follow you on Instagram, your colleague base, current or perspective. So I think the dynamic changes if you're an official spokesperson of the firm Mm -hmm. where you work. But if you're not, It's best to keep them separate. Your organization likely has a media policy. It's probably stricter than you think it is. And a softer standpoint too, I'd say that employees hold their organizations up to a pretty high standard for reputation. When external crisis hits, we actually worry most about how internal colleagues are going to view the reputation misstep. And so if colleagues are holding their firms to high reputation standards, I think it you should hold yourself to a high reputation standard of how you're performing and your activity on social media. Because even if you're not a representative of the firm, you are a representative of the firm by being a colleague. Especially on LinkedIn, if your LinkedIn headline says, I work for XYZ company, it's hard to completely separate yourself from that company when you post a comment. One of the things that we're actually trying to tap into is we don't want to say, no, JR, don't go speak on this panel or don't go post this on LinkedIn. If you've got something to say, we want to hear about it. And one of the things that I'm trying to change internally is 
yes, there will always be a level of oversight and a yes or a no that may need to happen from my team with bigger media opportunities, conferences, or even some LinkedIn content. But the relationships that each colleague has, the perspective that each colleague has, that's valuable to someone like me. So being able to harness that is something we're trying to think about more strategically. It'd be interesting to see how that discussion plays out. I think a lot of companies are wrestling with how to harness it without it getting out of control. Let's talk a little bit about PR agencies. You mentioned partners earlier in your four P's framework. How do you think about your PR agencies? How do you want to work with them? What do you look for from them? It's always a balance. So the couple of different teams that I've helped modernize, there are different agency equations at each of them. So at Manulife, we have a huge Asia presence. And Asia is obviously an incredibly diversified region with multiple markets and multiple languages. So you're probably going to need a lot of different smaller agencies to help you get your work done, and that's okay. Whereas the North American market, even the European market, It's just more consolidated, obviously, around language, but approach too. So we tend to have fewer agencies on North America side of things and almost the same approach in Europe. But across the board with agencies, I like to think of it as the brain to arms and legs ratio. Your internal PR team is always going to be the brains of the operation because they sit closest to the business and theoretically have the deepest acumen. Your agencies are your arms and legs. And so getting that balance right is really important. You wouldn't expect your ankle to do algebra. And so you need to set the team up for success with having the right folks on the inside of things and the right folks on the agency side of things. Because an agency is really only as effective as the internal PR teams helping them connect the dots. So when we take a look at agencies, we first take a look at the team itself and validate if we've got the right people overseeing the agency. And then from an agency perspective, we're taking a look at their conversion ratio. So this is a metric that takes a look at how many relationships are you touching for our business on a regular standpoint and what are you doing with them? Sometimes it could be just keeping the relationship alive and that's okay. But when we call on you to convert those relationships, is it happening? Because again, you're the arms and legs from an execution standpoint of our PR strategy. So that conversion is a really important metric. So that's one metric we bring to the table to assess quality. Across the board, agencies are an important part of how a PR team brings things together. It's just about the balance of the internal team versus the agency resources. They can certainly help you. I mean, you talked about Asia a minute ago with that local on the ground knowledge and network that are just hard for any company to build at scale when they're geographically distributed as Manulife is. And you'll never have all the budget in the world to have a million PR people, or at least not the organizations where I've been. So agencies, to your point, really do help achieve that scale. But the effectiveness of that scale is dependent on those internal teams. You talked also about people in your 4Ps framework. So you've clearly worked with a lot of senior leaders over the years as they're playing some kind of role in executing a communications strategy or event. What are the best ones do well? And on the flip side, where do you find that you have to most often coach them? I think the most effective leader I've worked with from a communications standpoint for colleague communications, though she's good at everything, but for colleague communications specifically is Marianne Harrison, our CEO at John Hancock. And the reason why she's such an effective communicator is because she's real. She's very authentic 
and we're able to match her communications tactics that we recommend with who she really is as a person. I'll say that a good comms team is able to understand their leader's voice and their leader's authentic self and match communications techniques that accomplish the objectives you have to accomplish, but in an authentic way for that leader. So part of a leader's effectiveness is an effective comms partner. But for a leader to be effective from a communication standpoint, they have to be authentic. They have to be real. They have to admit when they're wrong. They have to be comfortable with admitting they don't have all the information and focus more on showing up. And I think about it a lot as a parent. The most important part about being a parent is showing up. And the most important part of being a leader with a big team of colleagues is showing up. So that'd be my advice for internal communications. For external communications, I'd say that the leaders who get it right are the leaders who do three things. One is remember that reputation is something you build. You would not expect a giant pension fund to sign on the dotted line after one cup of coffee. Why would the FT? And so the more that leaders recognize that relationships with journalists help produce those outcomes that you're looking for from a PR standpoint, those are the ones who, who tend to do the best and who put the time in and don't just show up to an interview and four times a year tied to quarterly earnings and expect a reputation to be generated on the back of that. So number one is understand the power of building relationships with media. Number two is have a perspective. You'd be shocked at how many senior leaders don't have a perspective. And whether it's they haven't sat down to think about it or they don't know how to express it from a PR standpoint, but some leaders have a really unique perspective to bring to the table. Others really don't express that. And obviously the more effective communicators are one who have big perspective and can work with their PR teams to refine that perspective into action-grounded communications. And my third piece of advice for leaders who want to be good communicators, both internally and externally, is for the love of God to read their briefing books that their communications teams spend forever (laughs) on. Okay. I'm laughing because I'm sure that doesn't happen nearly as much as you would like it to happen. Certainly not. (laughs) Yeah. And practice. There's probably a corollary thing in there to actually prep and practice. Within prep and practice, if you're practicing in front of a mirror, you'll never be an effective communicator. Being a communicator means being able to have dialogue and being able to be light and pivot with your message. It's not just about standing and delivering. So my poor husband, I practice a lot from a communication standpoint because I often have to be the voice of the organization. And he knows my material inside and out leading up to a presentation because I run it through him. And I have a huge advantage because he's in sales. And so he similarly has talk tracks that he has to practice on me. But that feedback is really important to being a strong communicator and being able to jump around a conversation instead of plow straight through it. More generally, what advice would you give to people for how to strengthen their communication skills? It's something that's so foundational to pretty much everything you do in life, certainly in your professional life. I think strengthening your communication skills requires you to assess your inputs, right? Communication skill is an output. Your input is just as important. I spent a lot of time writing in my college career, and I thought maybe that was going to be what I, my chosen profession would end up being. To be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. 
And it's because those ideas that you're reading, those narratives that you're interpreting, help you rethink how you frame things. And so if you want a solid communicator internally with your people or externally with media, I'd say read the news, read you know any given book that's popular in your industry, read what your leadership team is reading, read what your team is reading. But then it's also listen. So the best communicators are the ones that make time for their team. And so Marianne's another great example of this. She, You can see her out there talking to almost everybody on the floors on a regular basis. And she's got a really strong grasp on what's important to them. And that really helps her and us as her communications partners ground her communications in relevancy because she's got her fingers on the pulse of what her audience needs. Which is a, a huge strength as a communicator to be able to pair it with empathy ultimately is what you're describing. And th- th- that's our old colleague, Suzanne Duncan from the Center for Applied Research at State Street. I fell in love with her work because she brought that psychological print, those psychological principles to how we understand the world of finance. And a lot of that was empathy-based too. Empathy as a core skill is important from an interpersonal standpoint, but definitely from a professional standpoint and very clearly from a communications perspective as well in being able to understand what people need and why, what their drivers are, and how you can really access them in a conversation. Let's go back to early and days. Did you envision yourself when you were growing up in New Jersey, contemplating going off to study Russian literature at Bryn Mawr? Did you envision yourself being a writer or a professor or something else at that point? Two things that I really wanted to be when I grew up. One was a 60 minutes anchor. Okay. And one was a National Geographic photographer. And both of those things are about telling stories, mm-hmm. one through sharing stories and talking about them, but one through images. And I still am holding out hope for the 60 minutes call based on the average age of their anchors. I still think I, I'm in the running. Well, you've got decades left. I've got decades. Whenever Leslie Stahl is out, I'm in. And I think that really set a foundation, obviously, for a love of communications and literature. I certainly didn't think that I was going to be able to convert my Russian literature love into a profession. And I think that was a truth I had to face in my early college career. What I was loving researching and understanding wasn't really going to create a career for me. So I had to take a step back and think about what would. And that's really what drove me towards communications and marketing as an opportunity set. And you transferred too, right? You ended up finishing your bachelor's at Suffolk. I did the, the long version of college and I started out at Bryn Mawr. I did some study abroads and I loved Bryn Mawr. I was getting great grades. I was studying Russian literature. I was having a great time, but it didn't really feel like the right path for me. Something was missing. And if yeah, I was looking at myself and saying, gosh, what are you going to be doing with this in seven years, in 10 years? And I couldn't answer that for myself. So I actually took time off of school. And I moved to North Carolina and just struggled for a few years to be perfectly blunt about it. I was in sales. I had odd jobs. I was struggling to make ends meet. And I don't think a lot of people share those early struggles in their career as often as they should or their educational experience. And it was really foundational for me to be out there and not doing well and being worried about where my next paycheck was coming from. And it gave me a dose of reality 
that I didn't have coming from a privileged upper middle class upbringing in northern New Jersey. And that experience, not winning, not succeeding, helped really establish and cement the persistence and grit that I bring to my profession and my career now. Now, that experience showed me that I needed to go back to school. And so when I went back to school, I didn't go back to liberal arts. I went to Suffolk because they have a really great law program. And I wanted to finish my undergrad and get into their law school. That didn't end up happening because my PR career took off, but that was the game plan and why I made that shift, why I ended up in Boston and and ultimately how I ended up where I ended up with State Street and working with you. But it was that pivot that I had to make in the middle of my college career to really understand how my career would, would take shape. So now fast forward back to today, you're in the heart of your career. You have decades to go before you're age appropriate to be a 60 minutes anchor. How are you thinking about how you manage your career now? Are you, would you describe yourself as being super intentional about it or more opportunistic? I'm a very intentional person. And I definitely think a lot about what experiences I'm having and how I can tap into different ones. And a lot of that is project-based And Manulife is really good at that. They're really great at taking someone who's good at one thing, but signing them up for a project. I helped run a strategic cost management initiative a year and a half ago, and it required prioritization, ruthless focus on execution and project management skills, which I have in spades, but not necessarily for a strategic cost management exercise. And so the opportunity to do that gave me a whole new set of experiences to bring into my career development. And so I look for opportunities like that. I'm at a great organization who helps match me up to opportunities like, but your question about if it, I'm intentional about it or if it's more organic, I'd say that everyone's career is 50% luck and 50% yeah. intention. And I think that on the luck piece, there's two elements of that. One, recognizing your privilege and growing up in an upper middle class house and going to a school like Bryn Mawr and to a large extent being able to fail with a safety net and then getting back into school, that's privilege. Being a white woman versus a woman of color trying to do what I'm doing, that's privilege. The opportunities that have come my way because of that foundation that's privilege. And so recognizing that privilege and making sure you're paying it forward to people that don't have it is a really important, total other topic that we could get into. But the other piece of the opportunity that comes your way is you need to be aware and looking around you at the trends that that are impacting your experience and asking yourselves why you're seeing what you're seeing or why opportunities are or aren't landing in your lap. And that awareness about the opportunity set coming your way is really important because the other 50% of your career is what you do with your luck Mm. and how you capture it and action it and create a career development plan and set that intention. So I would just say 50% of it is luck. You have to keep your eyes open and then make a plan with what you get. You're in a profession that can be 24-7 at times. You have a seven-month-old at home. How do you manage the pace? your energy, your resilience levels. My husband can probably overhear me. So thank you, Brian, for being a fabulous partner and making it easy to have a family and a career. I'm really lucky in that regard. But in terms of pace and balance, pace is actually really important because another word for pace is momentum. You have to be able as a leader to set a pace and capture momentum with your team. 
while also giving them a moment to breathe. This is something that we look at a lot across my team and it does ebb and flow. And so what I encourage my team to do is be flexible with themselves. And I think that's one of the gifts of the pandemic is more flexible work schedule. It certainly helps a communications practitioner because there are some days where we're working 7 a.m. to midnight. And then there are other days where it's lighter. And on the days where it's lighter, it's okay to take a walk. It's okay to take a longer lunch break. It's okay to go get some baby cuddles in between meetings. But taking those opportunities and seizing them in the moments that aren't quite as busy is really important for a communications practitioner because our world isn't planned. And so being able to be self-directed in your balance is something that even the most junior of practitioners needs to master pretty early on, given the nature of the flow of the job. Last question, career advice that you would offer for our audience? Career advice I would offer your audience, my younger self, my kids, is that at organizations like the ones that you and I work at, you are a steward. You don't own anything. And the faster you can get there, the faster you can stop stop worrying about things that don't matter. Things that don't matter like reporting lines, like titles. None of that matters. Your impact that you make at an organization and leaving it better than you found it is your role as a steward. And even from the most junior of roles and certainly to the most senior of roles, taking that stewardship lens when working at big organizations like ours that that's my biggest piece of career advice to anyone listening today. That's excellent advice. Mindful of time, we will stop there. Could have covered many other topics, but I appreciate getting some time with you today. It was nice to catch up. It's been a while. It has. So good to chat with you, Jack. Yeah. Thanks again, Anne. And we'll talk again soon. I'd like to thank Anne for joining me today and diving into the world of corporate communications and how she's navigated her own career journey. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, become a Pathwise member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.